Section 16 of A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 3, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 7, Chapter 2, Minor Penalties, Part 1. In the preceding chapter, the general penal system of the Inquisition has been considered, but for its proper comprehension, a brief exposition of its several penalties is requisite. In this, it is unnecessary to treat of confiscation and pecuniary penance, which have already been discussed as constituting the financial basis of the existence of the Holy Office. Reprimand of the minor inflictions, the most nearly universal was the reprimand. It is naturally absent from the severer sentences of reconciliation and relaxation, but, with these exceptions, scarce any defendant escaped it, no matter how groundless the accusation was proved to be, or how plainly his innocence was manifested. The freedom with which it was administered is evidenced in a phase of frequent occurrence in the reports of the Toledo Tribunal, quote, As no offense was proved, he was reprimanded and warned for the future, end quote. We have seen that some strict constructionists held that reprimand was incompatible with suspension, but that this principle was universally disregarded. The same authority asserts that no reprimand was to be administered without a formal sentence, but cases are numerous in which it is expressly recorded that the party was reprimanded without a sentence, and sometimes this was by special command of the Suprema. In the Valladolid Tribunal there were eight such cases in the year 1641. To scold the defendant was one of the prerogatives of the Inquisitor, from the use of which he rarely abstained, especially as it afforded the opportunity of expatiating on the benignity which imposed penalties so incommensurate with the offenses. The severity of the infliction varied with his temper and power of invective, but constant practice rendered him skillful in detecting the sensitive places and in applying the lash where it would be most keenly felt. There were those among the victims who regarded this as a severer penalty than a pecuniary penance, and it is not surprising that it occasionally drew forth remonstrance and retort, which were promptly suppressed by the infliction of a fine for the expenses of the tribunal. No record was made of reprimands beyond the fact of their utterance, but there is one which chances to have been preserved, as it seems to have been carefully elaborated and reduced to writing. It was administered by the licentiate Juan de Manosca, who had been president of the Chancellery of Granada, to an unlucky gentleman prosecuted for having said that belief in matters of faith was good breeding. He had made the case worse by arguing, in his defense, that he could conceive of no word more applicable to the matter than cortesia, and that his long residence at the court had familiarized him with all the niceties of the Castilian tongue. For this, as a proposition ill-sounding and savoring of heresy, Manyoska belabored him through ten closely written pages of savage ridicule. In the Andalusian tunny fishery, he said, quote, there may have been an infinity of tunnies, the smallest of them as big as you, and yet not one of them will show the least particle of salt, although they have lived in the midst of salt. 
End quote. So he went on, quoting the scriptures, the classic poets, and Plato, to prove that the unfortunate culprit was an ignoramus, closely approaching a heretic. Such ignorance was likened to the unfruitful ears of corn, which, according to Christ, are only fit to be swept up and burnt, and the diatribe concluded with the significant warning that it was the Inquisition which gathered such worthless stocks and delivered them to the secular arm, that they might pass through temporal to eternal flame. Doubtless the culprit was a fool, but his folly merited no such terrific warning. Abjuration Suspicion of heresy, as we have seen, was in itself a crime requiring punishment. In accusations of formal heresy which failed of proof, there remained as a rule at least suspicion, and there was besides a number of offenses which, though not in themselves heretical, were brought under the jurisdiction of the Inquisition by a more or less forced assumption that they inferred suspicion of heresy that no one who believed rightly as to sacraments and points of doctrine could be guilty of them. In the old Inquisition this suspicion was classified as light, vehement, or violent, and these distinctions were retained in the new. Violent suspicion, however, may be discarded from consideration here, for it sufficed for condemnation, and in practice it admitted of no disproof or explanation, for, although theoretically it might be explained away, this was but a bare possibility. As Peña says, it created presumption of law, as when a man remained for a year under excommunication. The distinction between light and vehement suspicion was somewhat nebulous. Like everything else in the vague region of morals, it was incapable of accurate definition, and each case had to be decided on its own merits, according to the temper of the judges. Albergini's attempted test of infrequent or habitual performance of acts inferring suspicion fails utterly in practice, and moreover leaves unsettled the more important and common class of cases where testimony was insufficient for conviction, and yet too strong for acquittal. Moreover, Suspicion might be modified by exterior circumstances, as when Miguel Calvo tells us that, with Moriscos, however slender may be the suspicion, it must be treated as vehement. It was evidently impossible to prescribe any absolute rule, and it is to the credit of the Inquisition that it rarely pronounced suspicion to be vehement, while light suspicion occurs in almost all sentences short of reconciliation. Thus, in the Toledo record from 1648 to 1794, there are 314 abjurations de levi, and only 51 de vehementi, or about an average of one every three years. Whatever other punishment might be visited on suspicion, abjuration of heresy in general, and especially of the heresy suspected, was indispensable. This could be administered either in the audience chamber or in a public auto de fe, and was an impressive ceremony. In the face of a cross, and with his hand on the Gospels, the culprit swore that he accepted the Catholic faith, and detested and anathematized every species of heresy, and especially that of which he was suspect. He pledged himself always to keep the faith of the Church, and to be obedient to the Pope and the papal decrees. He declared that all who opposed the Catholic faith were worthy of condemnation, 
promising never to join them, but to persecute them and denounce them to prelates and inquisitors. He swore to receive patiently and humbly all penance imposed on him, and to fulfill it with all his strength. If the abjuration was for light suspicion, he consented and desired that, if he failed in any part of this, he should be held as impenitent, and he submitted himself to the correction and severity of the canons, so that the penalties prescribed in them should be executed on his person, and finally he called upon the notary to record it, and on all present to serve as witnesses. If the abjuration was for vehement suspicion, he consented and desired that, if he failed in his promises, he should be held and considered as a relapsed, and suffer the penalties provided for relapse. This was the difference between abjuration de levi and abjuration de vehementi, so often alluded to above, and it was of no small import under the canons. After the former, re-incidence in the offense entailed no special penalty. It was at the discretion of the tribunal merely to repeat the previous sentence, or to aggravate it, as the case might appear to deserve. But, after the latter, re-incidence was relapse, for which the canons decreed irrevocable burning, ipso facto and without trial. To impress this on the penitent, his abjuration de vehementi was written out, and he was made to sign it. Then, on the next day after the auto de fe, he was brought into the audience chamber, it was read to him, and he was warned to observe its conditions, for, if he should again fall into any heresy whatever, he would be treated as a relapsed without mercy, and it would be the same if he did not perform the penance imposed. In spite of these impressive formalities, I think it doubtful whether, after the first furious rush of persecution was passed, the extreme penalty of relaxation for re-incidence after abjuration de vehementi was customary. As a rule, in the later periods, inquisitors rather endeavored to avoid relaxation, and, while they were callous, they were not apt to be unnecessarily cruel. I have not happened to meet with such a case, while I have found more than one in which the canons were not observed. In fact, a learned writer of the second half of the seventeenth century argues elaborately, with the citation of many authorities, to show that re-incidence after abjuration de vehementi does not incur the punishment of relapse, despite the penalties expressed in the formula, and this would appear to have been tacitly accepted, for a custom arose of specifying in the sentence whether or not the abjuration should entail the penalty. Thus, in 1725 at Cuenca, Dr. Zapata, accused of Judaism, was required to abjure de vehementi with liability to relaxation, while in 1794 at Toledo, Damaso José López de Cruz, for heretical propositions, was sentenced to similar abjuration without such liability. There was another distinction between the two forms of abjuration, for those who abjured de vehementi were subject to the disgrace of appearing in an auto de fe, and of wearing a san benito de media aspa, or with one band of color across it, before and behind. The instructions of 1561 state that, when there is semi-proof, or such indications that the accused cannot be acquitted, there are three remedies, 
compurgation, torture, or abjuration. But this is scarce correct, for those who succeeded in compurgation were always, and those who overcame torture were generally, required to abjure. The instructions add that abjuration, whether for light or vehement suspicion, is rather a measure to inspire fear for the future than a punishment for the past, and therefore it is usually accompanied with pecuniary penance. In fact, it was only in trifling cases, or in suspensions, that abjuration was not associated with much severer penalties. This was inevitable in the large class of offenses which, by a strained construction, inferred suspicion of heresy. In these, when guilt was proven, it received its appropriate punishment, perhaps of scourging or the galleys, and the abjuration was a mere formality to satisfy the artificial ascription of heretical belief. In cases of suspicion of real heresy, abjuration, whether de levi or de vehementi, was a necessary adjunct to the punishment. Thus in the Toledo Auto of February 7, 1694, Luis de Vargas, for suspicions of Judaism, was sentenced to abjure de levi, to pay a fine of two hundred ducats, and to be exiled for six years from various places. So, in 1715, at Toledo, the Carmelite Fray Francisco Martinez de Salazar, for crimes vehemently suspect of heresy, appeared in the audience chamber with a San Benito de Media Aspa, in the presence of twelve priests. He abjured de vehementi, was sternly reprimanded and threatened, and sentenced to a long list of penalties, including deprivation of functions, reclusion for six years in a convent, and a circular discipline in the Carmelite house of Toledo. On this composite sentence, the consulta de fe had evidently exhausted its ingenuity, and the abjuration was merely a formal necessity to justify the rest. Yet, while abjuration in itself can scarce be termed a punishment, it was, even when only de levi, an infliction of no little severity, in consequence of the infamy which it entailed, as we have seen in the Villanueva case, where the victim and his kindred struggled for so many years in Rome to have it removed. End of section 16